Okay, if I could interrupt you. The certain Galatians chapter. No, go ahead. You're spiritual. Galatians chapter 3. One word tonight, the subject will be identity. And we're going to start with Galatians 3, backing into 3 7. As we mentioned, both, well, actually, this is the first time we know when the memorial service for Major Rickard will be held, and that's going to be at Grace Methodist Church on Tuesday, June 6th at 2 p.m. And I have no idea what to expect. I know I'm supposed to speak there, but I think he's made some odd requests, including a rendition of Yakety Sax, which, um, (laughs) okay, that's, uh, that's great. He's laughing right now, I'm sure. All right, let's take a couple moments, silent preparation. Father, we thank you for another opportunity. We pray that you'll grant us the grace to make the most of it and therefore to be enlightened and to have the eyes of our heart enlightened about the hope of our calling, about the glorious riches of our inheritance, about the power that was utilized to raise Christ from the dead and which is available to us as members of the new creation and the new humanity. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, speaking of identity, Paul writes to a former pagan group, you know then that those who are, now this could be strictly translated from faithfulness or of faithfulness, these are the sons of Abraham. From faithfulness there, of course, ekpistios, means of the faithfulness of Jesus, specifically. If you confer with Romans 3.26, and it's safe to do so on this subject, Romans 3.26 talks about God being righteous and being the one who justifies, or we could say rectifies or sets right or acquits, those who are of the faith of Jesus or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about ekpistios, we're talking about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as we are learning and as I'm finding more and more with each reference to that word, it's almost always with a relationship to Christ himself. Or we could say it's the faithfulness of the Son of God in Galatians 2.20. Paul recognizing that we have been grafted in to the history of Christ, the downward trajectory, crucified with Christ, buried with him, raised with him in the upward trajectory, so we share his history, we share his destiny, we share most intimately his identity, as we're seeing in this phase of the teaching. So those who are, let's call it, of the faithfulness of Jesus, are the true sons of Abraham. And so those whose identity are the true sons of Abraham are not the descendants, physical descendants of Abraham. They aren't such 
by physical heritage. They are not such by the privileged residents in Palestine or the land. They are not such by keeping a kosher table, by observing Sabbath or other holy days, or by the males submitting to the minor surgery called circumcision. They are those who are of the faithfulness of Jesus are the true sons of Abraham. He doubles up on this in Galatians 3.9. So then, those who are from faithfulness, that ever-famous phrase, ever-oft-repeated phrase, ek pistios, ek pistios, those who are from faithfulness, we could say, They came out of faithfulness. They were brought forth out of faithfulness. Not their faith, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Ekpistios. So then those who are from faithfulness. And that's the faithfulness of Christ, the singular seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations are to be blessed, as we know. Those who are from faithfulness are blessed with faithful Abraham. Those who are of faithfulness or from the faithfulness are blessed with faithful Abraham. And here we have a foreshadowing of Romans four. Paul deals in Romans three in the trenches of battle with something that he's going to unfold more in far more detail in Romans. And so I think we almost have to go Galatians first before we go to Romans in order to really understand what Paul is ironing out. In Romans. So this is a foreboding of Romans 4, but here it's talking about those who are, the, are from the faithfulness, or we could say are born out of the faithfulness of Christ, or are rectified or set right by Christ's faithfulness, are blessed with faithful Abraham. And because Abraham participated in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ from the time when the gospel was announced to him, as an unconditional promise. And that promise elicited faith and inspired fidelity in Abraham. That Abraham is not a paradigm of justification by faith is evident in Romans 4, where it talks not only about the promise eliciting faith in him, but then all the way up through Romans 4.21 and even further It talks about his fidelity, his lifelong fidelity, which is also only attributable to his participation in Christ's fidelity. The whole idea in Galatians centers around the identity of the Galatian churches who received the spirit at the report of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So like Paul They had an apocalyptic revelation and were transferred into Christ. And so a community was created by the gospel. And the whole idea is that these Galatian churches could now be considered the true community of Israel, the true children of Abraham, the true sons of Abraham. Paul will even go a lot further and say, in fact, the sons of God. The whole incursion by these false teachers supported by false brothers in the Jerusalem church or false brothers in Jerusalem. They were supporting 
these false teachers, their whole idea was, well, if you pagans want to be part of the community called Israel, which is God's favorite and elect community, you have to do it through a circumcision of the males, b keeping a kosher table, the right, obeying the dietary laws of Torah, observing Sabbath, as Paul will talk about in Galatians four nine and ten, and observing other holy days. And Paul said, you know, you guys doing that is nothing more than the way you used to worship the heathen gods, the pagan gods, and you had your special holidays there too, and your special holy sacrifices and all the rest of it. He said, it's the same thing. They're called weak, stoichia, elements of the age, elements of the cosmos. The false teachers, therefore, were telling them that to be identified with and to become part of the community of the people of God, that is Israel, required that these pagans comply with, again, circumcision, kosher table, as well as the keeping of Sabbath. Now, the kosher table was the point of controversy with Peter in Antioch. Remember, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because the Gentile, he was eating with the Gentiles and they were not, as, as it's called, keeping or observing the kosher laws of Torah. And so when these people came down from Jerusalem, authorities that Paul did not recognize. They came down, they were not the apostles, nor were they sent by the apostles. They were sponsored by false brothers. Paul talks about these false brothers several times in Galatians. They're one of the players in the drama. They take a bow at the end of Galatians, and they bow out, as it were. When they came in, Peter was intimidated by their presence, and so he moved away from the fellowship of the Gentiles and the freedom of the Holy Spirit. And Paul just had enough of that. He saw that happening over a period of time. He saw the trend develop, and he finally took Peter on and, and blasted him publicly. And he did so with great love, and I think Peter took it seriously. And that we find in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, of course. But that was a hot issue. So these teachers said, and we can imagine them speaking, and they said, in effect, hey, we have good news. And they called it a gospel, which is really, Paul said, I doubt it. It's not a gospel. They said, hey, good news. You can be Jews by compliance with the following ordinances of the law. And they would go on to list them. Paul says, in irreconcilable contradiction to what they said, he says, the Galatians are already the people of God through the faithfulness, or we could say, through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gives them their identity. So Paul, in his irreconcilable opposition to these teachers, told the Galatians and reminded them they're already the people of God through the faithfulness of Israel's Messiah, who is also, as we know from John, the Savior of the world. The Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the world because it was always understood that Israel was an example of how God was going to deal universally with all peoples and all creation. So the salvation of Israel is the salvation of all creation. It's an example of it. And so 
the idea here is that when the Samaritans said this, we have learned and we know for ourselves now and we believe that this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. In one breath, they identified him as Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world. He is both at once, and he can't be one without being the other. He can't be Messiah of Israel without being Savior of the world. Israel's election was not a selection or a selection that involved exclusion. It was an election with a view to inclusion of all the nations. In you, Abraham, even better, in your seed, which is Christ, all the nations will be blessed, including Israel. So the people of God, and that includes us today, and you can ask yourself a question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Well, that's just demonstrable of the fact that you're in him. And it's very simple. And that you have been placed in him by the unconditional Grace of God. Don't glory in your faith. Glory in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. May it never be that I should ever glory in anything, including my faith, except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's his faithfulness. I will speak of his righteousness all day long. As far as mine, I have none. So, This is very important to me personally because this has been fought for in the trenches and secured as a victory, I think, that the Israel of God is identified as such through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is also the Savior of the world according to John 3.17. God did not send the Son into the world, Divine Mission 1 to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. John 4.42, and we've learned recently, 12.31, with the help of Francois Dutois of the Mirror Bible, especially that the judgment of the world in John 12.31 is its acquittal. It's, it's, is, it, is, it is its exoneration. God adjudicated the human race by the judgment of, of the cross. Imagine a young man in trouble and he owns up to what he did. And the lawyer says to him, I'm going to bring you before a judge and you're going to be adjudicated. And imagine that young man's fear at the word adjudicated. What does that mean? And he finds out that what it means is because he has stood up to this particular charge and has not tried to avoid it, that the judge expunges all charges and acquits him, so he is adjudicated as acquitted. Imagine the relief on that young man. I once knew a young man like that, a certain young man. And so the word adjudication, we think of it in terms of judgment, and Jesus said, it's for judgment that I have come into this world, that those seeing, he said, those seeing would be struck blind, and those not seeing would be made to see. John 9, 38 and 39. So, they, the Israel of God, and I still hold to the original assertion I made in Galatians when I taught it, if you remember, and some of you do, I know the Trinity does. 
when I taught it back to front, Galatians backwards, that the formerly pagan Galatian churches are part of the Israel of God, God's true Israel, which is precisely made up of the beneficiaries and partakers of Messiah Jesus' own fidelity. They are God's true Israel, not by compliance with the demands of Torah, not by keeping a kosher table, not by circumcision of their males, or by observance of Sabbaths, new moons, and holy days. They are not true Israel by physical descent from Abraham, or by residence in the promised land, or by some imagined political freedom or theocracy. Moreover, beyond their being the sons of Abraham, the Israel of God, are heirs according to the promise, according to the promise, not the law. According to the promise, not law. They are all the sons of God based on the fidelity of Jesus Christ. That's what's being taught in Galatians and in Romans. They are all the sons of God through the fidelity of Jesus Christ. They are all part of the Israel of God, which will one day comprise all of humanity. If we take seriously what Paul says in passages like Romans 5.18 and 1 Corinthians 15.22-28, his eschatological vision of God being all in all and of justifying life being given to all humanity. For now, both former Jews and former Gentiles, or better, pagans, in whom faith was elicited by the gospel, form a proleptic community called the church, the body of Christ. Galatians calls it the church of God in Galatians 1.13, and he calls it the Israel of God in 6.16. There's an inclusio there. Who is the church? The church is both former Jews and former pagans in whom faith was elicited by the gospel, who form a proleptic community called the church, a community and a new creation in which antinomies of the passe age, we saw that before, this is a word made famous by J. Lewis Martin, antinomies, which are opposing laws or opposing principles or opposing or hostile Groups, we could even say. And so these, the antinomy that once existed, and there are several antinomies that once existed. There's male versus female. There's Jew versus Greek. There's slave versus free. And we could name hundreds of other points of contention and divisiveness in our own society and in this world today, in this generation. Those antinomies were destroyed by the cross. And this is what Paul means when he gets to Galatians 3.28. And so for now, both former Jews and former pagans in whom faith was elicited by the gospel form a proleptic community called the church. It is a community and a new creation. It is a new humanity, a one new man in Ephesians 2.15. It is a new creation in Galatians 6.15 in which antinomies of the passe age and the old creation are gone. The antinomy that exists in the new age, there is now 
in this age, which was brought about by the Christ event and by the coming of his faithfulness, there is this age. And the, there is an antinomy that exists in this age. It's not Jew versus Gentile, male versus female, slave versus free. It's the flesh versus the spirit. That's the antinomy that we need to be concerned with because we are now enlisted into the army of the man Christ Jesus, this man's army, in which we are not called to be all we can be in Adam, but be what we became when we were baptized by the Spirit into union with Christ, to be what we are in Christ. Religion tries to be all it can be in the old man. The Christian life is becoming what you are in Christ, by the Spirit, by supernatural power, and all by grace. Better get used to grace because it's never a principle that leaves. It's never anything but the dominating principle in our lives. So the antinomy that exists in the new age, which is the age that has come with the coming of Christ and of faithfulness, is flesh versus spirit, Galatians 5, 17. It is not the antinomy or hostility or combative nature of Jew versus Greek or male versus female or politically or socially free versus Slaves, in Christ, in this new humanity, in this one new man, there are no more old creation antinomies. Everybody and everything in Christ is a new creation. With regard to this, Ernst Kasemann, and I'm reading this commentary a few hours at a time, in his commentary on Romans, which he wrote in 1980, wrote of Paul the following on page 79 this fits it's so good to read things like this because I feel like sometimes we're pioneering or pushing forward and trying to demonstrate Paul's epistles as a vision a redemptive vision of Jesus Christ and his universal saving significance and that Paul is definitely saying that Ernst Kasemann said quote speaking of Paul his theology has a universal thrust and is thus oriented to the antithesis of Adam and Christ, of the first and the last creation. When tradition offers him the concept of the covenant, he uses it universalistically, and therefore in a transferred sense. Hence, he almost never speaks of the renewed covenant with the holy remnant. In analogy to the kinekatesis, or the new creation, he speaks of the kine diatheke, the New Testament. So Paul, according to Kazeman, has a universalistic theology and a covenant that doesn't relate to a holy remnant of select people, but to all of creation. This relates, I think, to Joel 2:28 and 29, which came to me forcefully today, in which the Lord promises to pour out his spirit upon all flesh, and that includes both male and female slaves. And I think that echo needs to be heard in Galatians 3.28 for that verse to be understood because it's talking about a universal gift of the Holy Spirit. The universality of the gift of the spirit destroys these antinomies. 
He doesn't just give the spirit to certain prophets, certain male prophets. He doesn't give the spirit. He says, your old men or your leaders will dream dreams and your young men will see visions and your and my slaves, your slaves or the people that are in a confined kind of situation in life or in some kind of environmental handicap, they will have the spirit poured out on them just as plentifully and there will be freedom for all. So with that said, let's look at Galatians 3.26, jumping ahead, speaking of identity. For you are all the sons of God. Once again, I think here we need to hear an echo. And sometimes the echoes from the Old Testament are not heard very easily. And you don't see them in commentaries very often. But I think we have to hear one from the Septuagint of Hosea 2.1, which is Hosea 1.10 in most English translations. For you were all the sons of God. This is God's promise that he said, once you were not my people, but in that day you shall be called the sons of God, the sons of the living God. This is eschatological Israel. Paul is telling a group of pagans that they are eschatological Israel, along with others, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. They are the Israel of God. And then he says, just can't shake this verse, can't shake this phrase, through the fidelity. Once again, through the faithfulness. This time we have a phrase, dia, which is equivalent to, let's say almost equal to, equivalent to ekpistios is this phrase, dia, teis, pistios, P-I-S-T-E. O-S. Dia teis pistios is equivalent to ek pistios. Dia through the faithfulness or from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The reason I say that again is by a reference to Romans 3.30 in which Paul says, he asked the question, is God a God of the Jews only? No, of course he's a God of the Gentiles. In fact, the teacher says this to Paul, is God of God of the Jews only? And Paul says, no, he's also a God of the Gentiles. And Paul says, furthermore, he will justify, or we could say rectify, liberate, deliver, the Gentiles, diates pistios, even as he delivers or justifies the, uh, the circumcision, ek pistios, through the same fidelity of Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles. And so the whole idea of Jew versus Gentile as an antinomy belongs to an old and passe age. You can still preserve it if you want, but you're certainly out of sync. You're out of time. You're out of your mind. For you are all the sons of God, he says, through the fidelity. That's through the faithfulness. That is in Messiah, Jesus. That is the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, participated in by the Galatians through the faith that the gospel ignited in them. Verse 27, for you see, Paul says, with the explanatory use of the preposition gar, or the conjunction gar, for you see, he said, all who are baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. We mentioned that a little bit last night, and we'll reiterate that, but I want to move on. There is no 
Jew or Greek. We could translate that. There is no more antinomy, Jew versus Greek. There's no more Jew versus Greek. There is no more slave versus free person. There is no male versus female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, again, I'm not going to deal completely with 328. There's a lot of inferences here, a lot of implications here, a lot of consequences we have to deal with. But one that I have not seen in any commentaries is that there is an echo related to both slave and free and male and female, both. If you read Joel 2, 28 and 29, I'll read it to you. The Septuagint, this is maddening sometimes, but the Septuagint or the LXX is Joel 3, 1 through 2. In English translations, it's the famous Joel 2, 28 and 29. But listen to what it says. I translated this from the Greek text. And after all, or after that, it will come about that I will pour out. He uses the word ekkeo here. E-K-C-H-E-O. Ekkeo. It's found in Romans 5.5. 5. The Holy Spirit who is given to us pours out the love of God in our hearts. So there's a relationship there to a promise that he will pour out his spirit to a principle and a fact that we have already had the Holy Spirit given to us and he's poured out the love of God in our hearts. That's how he makes us walk according to his ordinances, which have to do with love. But here it is again, Joel 1 and 2, 3, 1 and 2, Septuagint. After that, it will come about that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's a salvific term. The pouring out of the spirit on someone is a salvific promise. On all flesh, therefore, it is a universalistic, unconditional promise. All flesh, all humanity. Jesus said, the Father has given authority over all flesh to me so that I can give eternal life to anyone I choose to. Now, if he's got authority over all flesh, I think whom he chooses to give eternal life to is everybody. That's the point of, of Romans 5.18. Through my servant's suffering and agony, many will be considered righteous or many will be justified. Isaiah 53.11, Paul interprets that many, as we know, as all. My spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your elders will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. And upon male slaves, he says... Upon male slaves, doulos, and female slaves, doulas. In those days, I will pour out same ekkeo, as in Romans 5, 5. I will pour out my spirit. And so both slaves and male and female receive the same universal gift of the Holy Spirit. And so there is no more slave or free. There's no more slave versus free. There's no more. In other words, there's no more social status that is any more desirable than any other social status. Because Jesus Christ chose the social status of being a slave and was obedient in that, if we could call that a vocation, to the extent of death by crucifixion. 
Therefore, God has also highly exalted him, given him a name above every other name, so that at the name Yeshua, every knee will genuflect, every tongue confess allegiance to him by saying Yahweh is Yeshua. That's because the spirit, nobody can say Jesus is Lord. That is, no one can say it with genuine intensity and genuine meaning. No one can say it except by the Holy Spirit. So if every tongue says it, and it's a true acknowledgement, it must be by the Spirit. The Spirit is ultimately the universal gift of God to all. That's how all the nations participate in the life of the Son of God and therefore partake of the divine nature through the unconditional promise of God. It's by the receiving of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit destroys all old age antinomies. And again, this seems to be an echo unheard in many commentaries or by many commentators on Galatians 3.28. If the echo is heard then, The antinomy between male and female is done away, specifically by the universal gift of the Spirit. That's, I think, the main point. Now, you get a lot of speculations out of this that some people believed, and some of the Jewish apocalyptic writers, I think, wrote, the rabbinical writers wrote, that in the resurrection there will be no gender, which is surprising since... Jesus Christ is still a man when he's raised from the dead. He's raised with the same body. He doesn't, he's not a Kendall, which, anatom, never mind. He still has the same body that he had when he died, but it's resurrected and it is made incorruptible. It is made immortal because he entered the human condition and entered the mortal human condition. He entered under the law, under the curse of the law. He entered into the whole human condition as we know it. And we can't say anything about it and say, well, if you knew what it was like to be, you have to shut up pretty quick. Because yes, he knew what it was like to be. If you knew what it was like to be the son of God taking on human flesh and then becoming sin, then maybe you could talk about it. Maybe you can talk about your problems. Now, here we have it. Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, that's Christ apostrophe S, belonging to him, like Paul in an ecstatic moment said to the Corinthians, and what a group they were. He said, don't you know? You want to say you're of Apollo's. And you're of Pet Peter, or Cephas, or Kepha, the Aramaic word for Peter, the rock. And you want to say you're of Paul. And some of you even want to say, no, we're over here. We're the church of Christ. We, we are of Christ, meaning we alone. We're just Jesus. We're just about Jesus. He said, you want to say all those things? But he said, I got to tell you this. Everything is yours whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, whether things present or things past or things future, whether death or life of the whole world, it's all yours. And you belong to Christ and Christ 
belongs to God. You belong to Christ. You don't say Christ belongs to me because I am of the denomination of Christ. Paul belongs to me because I am of the denomination of Paul. Or as Pastor Brown recently said to me, he told a person about how Paul believed universally about salvation in essence. And the person said, yeah, well, that was just Paul. Like Paul disagrees with Jesus, that kind of thing. There is that mentality in the world today, believe it or not. And so added to there is no Jew versus Greek, I would say there is no Jesus versus Paul. There was Jesus versus Saul, but there's no Jesus versus Paul. They're on the same page. So then, and you are Christ's. It says the same thing in Romans 1, 6, you belong to Jesus Christ. If you are Christ, and it's a fulfilled condition here of the Greek conditional phrase, if you are Christ, we could say, since you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Now we're talking about a pretty strict identity because in Galatians 3.16, he says the seed is singular and it's Christ. But now he's saying you're Abraham's seed singular, meaning you are also Christ, meaning you are Christ corporate, even as Jesus is Christ corporeally and individually and represents all of you, you are Christ's. And that means that you are Abraham's seed. There's identity for you. And then he says, heirs. H-E-I-R-S. True heirs don't put on heirs, but heirs. Plural, kleranomoi. According to promise. Heirs according to promise. Meaning, not according to law. Heirs according to un conditional promise not to the legal part of Torah so singular seed that's all I'm going to do is suggest a couple things now singular seed to spermati plural persons you all plural are Abraham's singular seed how do you reconcile that Are you saying that we are Christ in the sense that we are equal to him in his divinity? Of course I'm not. I'm saying that there is Christ and there is Christ corporate, the body of Christ. So we have the persons plural and heirs plural who are called the seed singular. And now we're going to find out as we progress in Galatians, and I'm going to iron this over again and over again until the wrinkles are out, so don't worry about it. The word, the seed singular are now, though plural, called the son singular. In Galatians 4, 7, you are the son singular, plural. You plural are the son singular. You plural are the seed of Abraham. And here we have another Corinthians connection. How do you reconcile this? And this is what I always do to God. I said, that's impossible. How do you reconcile this? Give me a bridge. Give me shelter. Give me a bridge. And he does in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just, again, I translated it again. Look very carefully at the Greek. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13, he says, "For for just as the human body 
is one entity while having many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. So you, being many, can be one Christ. You consist of Christ. Christ consists of you. He fills up everything with himself, and he starts with you. Starts with me. And then he says in verse 13, here's baptism for you. For by one spirit, we were all, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free persons, baptized into one body, and we were all, without exception, made to drink. Drink what? Well, the context is already there in 1 Corinthians 10.4 when he's ready to talk about we being many are one bread, we are one bread. He talks in 1 Corinthians 10.4 how they drank, the people of Israel drank from the rock, from the water from the rock. And Paul said, the rock is Christ. And Jesus said, screaming out in a very small room in the last day of the week-long feast, he said, Everyone that comes to me out of my innermost being will come rivers of water. And he spoke of this with relationship to the spirit, which was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. That is crucified, buried, raised, ascended, enthroned. And then the spirit. So he says again, baptized into one body by the spirit, we were all without exception made to drink of one spirit. That's the water from the rock. First Corinthians 10, four, the water being symbolic of that, which comes from the innermost being of Messiah, which is the spirit of Christ whom God sends into our hearts, crying out, Abba, father. I know that's a lot to take in, but that's the root of pneumatology. So here's a continuity of Christology and ecclesiology. If my goal was to become someday a systematic theologian, I would see here a link between Christology and ecclesiology or the study of Christ and the study of the church, just as we can see a connection and a link between Christology and pneumatology. Without, and every time you depart from Christology, you don't depart from Christology. You see an intensification of Christology. So here's a continuity of Christology and ecclesiology, systematically speaking. This brings into focus the individual and the communal or the corporeal and corporate identity of both the Son of Man. And when I say this, I'm talking about a thesis of doctrine that needs to be developed, and we've developed in some degree in the past. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is a figure who is both an individual figure and an inclusive representative figure. Christ, the Son of Man, then is seen as a divine human figure, but he's also seen as a corporate collective figure. So we being many are one body, one Christ, one in Christ. There's another corporate, collective, individual, and collective figure in Deutero-Isaiah throughout. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 55 is a second Isaiah, definitely, for sure, 
It is a second Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah. And the whole theme there are the servant songs, the servant of Yahweh. He too is portrayed as an individual figure and as a single inclusive representative figure. Son of Man represents Jesus Christ as representing all humanity, even as the servant of Yahweh represents Jesus Christ as the single inclusive representative of all Israel and because of all Israel, all of creation. And again, in Isaiah 53, 11, I think we find a key that through the agony or through the knowledge of this, the passion, through the endurance of the passion, my servant will justify many. Paul interpreted the many as all, and he interpreted the justification as the gift of life for all of humankind. Especially when you put Romans 5.18 together with 1 Corinthians 15.22. As you can see, there's a lot to wrap our arms around here. And that's why I have to daily give attention to these things, because I'm trying to wrap my mind and my arms around this whole message. This finds a correlation once again in Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, where in chapter 1, the Son is glorified. To which of the angels did God ever say at any time, sit at my right hand until all your enemies are made a footrest to your feet? The Son is glorified individually in Hebrews 1. But in Hebrews 2, many sons are called to glory. He calls many sons to glory. By the grace of God, he tasted death for every man in order to bring many sons into glory. Now, if you make that connection, you might see there, if the synapses are firing in the right way by the Holy Spirit in your human spirit, you're beginning to see that calling many sons into glory means calling everybody that he died for into glory. The many equals all in Hebrews 2, 9 to 13, as it is all in a comparison of Mark 10:45 with 1 Timothy 2:6, and Romans 5:18 with 1 Corinthians 15:22. So again, there's a correlation if you want. This opens up the whole book of Hebrews to us, where in chapter one, the Son is glorified, in chapter two, many sons are called to glory. This reminds us of Romans 8:29 where we are all predestined to be conformed into the image of God's Son through glorification. And so we also remember the innumerable company, the unnumbered, unnumbered, incalculable number of people who are called Abraham's descendants, plural. The number is like the sands of the sea. It's like the stars of the sky. It can't be numbered because it includes all of creation and all of humanity. Hebrews eleven twelve, compared with the Roman Revelation 7. So let's shift gears quickly. And I'm moving very rapidly here because, again, because I love you, I will repeat these things and iron them out and expand them, especially because Ralph wants me to. Now, if it is according to promise, kat epangelion, according to promise, kat epangelion, because it is according to promise, that is our identity, then it is consistent with God's unconditional promise 
Our identity derives from God's unconditional promise and not according to a conditional covenant or a contract. Again, the gospel consists of an unconditional promise and rests on the unilateral covenant fidelity of God in Christ for us. If God is for us, then who can be against us? So, the gospel consists of an unconditional promise and rests on the unilateral covenant fidelity of God in Christ and of Christ in God. Believe me that I am in my Father and my Father is in me. Believe me that we act in unison. Believe me that we are one in agency. Believe me when I say to you, I and the Father are one. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The gospel consists of an unconditional promise, as we've learned from Galatians 3.8. The gospel elicits or ignites faith, not so that faith will be the means for our justification, but so that the faithfulness of Christ will be recognized and acknowledged as the means of justification. Justifying life that is eventually to come to all and that has come already to all who believe. It is a matter of unconditional grace. I want you to listen carefully to this quote. It's something that fascinated me. Eric Diamond, who is, as we know, we're praying for him, many of us. He's going to Fuller Theological Seminary. He gave me this book, very brief book, no scripture references, but it's chock full with Scripture pops when you're reading. It's called The Mediation of Christ. And in the introduction in page XI to XII, which is 11 to 12 in the Roman numerals, he says this, and I began to identify, and I said, I can see how you have probably experienced a little bit of blowback from this. He was an advocate of unconditional grace. Thomas Torrance is his name. And he wrote this. Some people evidently feel that the stress I have laid upon unconditional grace undermines the integrity of the response we are to make in repentance for sin and in acceptance of Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Part of the problem here is that unconditional grace is too costly for it calls in question all that we are and do so that even in our repenting and believing we cannot rely upon our own response but only upon the response Christ has offered to the Father in our place And on our behalf. That's unconditional grace. That's the fidelity of Christ. I am of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I am the product of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am a son of Abraham. I am Abraham's seed. And I am an heir according to promise. And I'm saying that so that you can say that too. Unequivocally without reservation. 
People want to accentuate their own repentance, their own belief. When our salvation is because of the response that Jesus made to the Father for us, as us. That's why he said, not my will, Father, speaking for all of humankind in contradiction to the Father. Speaking as a representative of all mankind, not my will, but yours be done. And God's will is that all come to salvation. And the way to do it is through the response that Jesus Christ made right after that prayer, which was obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. So here's tracks to run on Galatians 4.1. I'm only saying this because the message Incidentally, I got some good news for you. Thanks to Jim's collaboration and Jeremy Key. Have you ever heard a message on double speed? I have to because that's the way my mind thinks. I can't. I'll, if I listen, I, one time I listen to my own message because once in a while I say, what the hell did I say? And I'll go over the message. But I learned you can do it double speed and there's a pitch control so that you don't get the Alvin and the chipmunk effect. It's, so you get the same voice only all the air between is kind of sucked out so you have the message in about what you normally would take 60 minutes to listen to it's maybe 35 40 minutes and i have to think that way well we're hoping to make available through the internet your ability to download the message on a double speed thing if you want to i think for many of you it's going to be far better than you ever imagined how to take in the message, have less time, because you do have less time. And you'll get the, it, it hits you harder than ever. That's, I used to do that with Colonel Themes tapes. I listened to probably 10,000 of them on double speed, on a pitch control, and, and it was awesome. I could listen to five messages in two and a half hours. So I did that all the time. So that's coming up. So I just said that to say this. Galatians 4.1, just to give you tracks to run on. Now, Paul said, now this is what I'm saying. Hey, Paul, what are you saying? This is what I'm saying. I like it when he answers the phone. Paul, what are you saying? Galatians 4.1. Now, what I'm saying is, that means he's continuing the analogy from common human affairs, which he set in motion in 3.15 is that the whole time that the heir is a minor, he's no different from a slave. Even though, and I'll use Martin's phrase, J. Lewis Martin's phrase, even though in prospect he is Lord of all. Since I've been studying the German scholars, that would be Herr or Herr über alles, Lord over all. Not the Nazi Battle cry, which was Deutschland über alles, Germany over all. That was, when you get into ultra-nationalism, you're in deep sheep dip. It's not Deutschland über alles, it's Jesus Christus über alles. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So what he's saying, what I'm saying is that when there's a minor, say he's the, say he's little Joe on the Ponderosa. When he's a kid, he doesn't know that whole estate belongs to him. And he's got to have caretakers. He's got to have tutors. He's got to have Hop Singh make his meals. He's got to have maybe older brother Adam 
and Haas teaching him how to ride a horse. He doesn't know that he's the Lord of the whole estate till he reaches a certain age. And then, or the father's last will and testament goes into effect and says, hey, little Joe, this is all yours. And Hosses and Adams in that case. But So he's saying, what I'm saying is this. The whole time that the heir, that is of an estate, is a minor, he's no different from a slave. Even though in prospect, he is the Lord of all. Herr uber alles. Jesus Christus uber alles. If I think when he says this, he is Lord of all, even though he's referring to analogy, it's an analogy. It's an oblique but potent reference to the lordship of Jesus Christ over all. Panton, he is Lord of the living and the dead. In 1 Corinthians 14, 9, this is the reason why he died and came alive again, so that he could be Lord of the dead and the living. He's the Lord of the dead and the living. So what happens to the dead, even those that don't believe in him? He's their Lord. He's taking care of them after they die. What about the living? Well, there's going to be a resurrection. Those who have done evil, that is, have not embraced this free gift of righteousness, will be raised to life. Those who have done evil will be raised to crema, crisis, acquittal. Everybody is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the living and the dead. He's the Lord of the ages, First Timothy 1.17. The Lord of the nations. The kingdoms of this world have been made the kingdom of our Christ, of God and of our Christ, said the two witnesses in Revelation 11.15. So I think this Lord of all, Pantone here, even though he is figuratively describing an heir over an entire estate, he is probably gesturing toward Jesus Christ as Lord of all. And reasons for this are two. Paul's radical Christocentricity, and secondly, in Galatians 4, 7, the singular son. You, Paul says, plural, are a son. And as a son, you are the heir. The distinctive blend of plural with singular that Paul uses here, and it's something we're going to exploit in the future a little better, a little more. As the sense with the servant of Yahweh in Deutero-Isaiah and the son of man in Deuteronomy 7, 13, 14, and here highlights the identification of the Galatians with the son who is the heir of all things with whom you and I are identified. Paul is not dealing here with salvation history per se, which a whole lot of theologians then and now are saying, which is a supposedly new perspective on Paul, but I believe we've got to go past the old and the new perspective. Justification by faith is the old perspective. Salvation history is the new perspective. The beyond the new and the old perspective is where we need to go. And that's where you find the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, and only there. So Paul's not reading here with salvation history, but with the entirety of humanity. And this is the most important thing I could say in closing. Paul is dealing not with human history evolving into salvation over the period of history. He's dealing with the whole of the human race all at once as a single monolith, as being once under the power of sin and death, and Torah, the law, in its enslaving and cursing voice. 
and then to that same monolith of entirety of humanity being liberated from that enslavement and given life. He's not talking about a salvation history. He's talking about the entire human race being under sin and then the entire human race being under grace because of the entire human race being once in Adam and the entire human race being now in Christ. He's talking about something that is shockingly to the church today, appallingly to religious people today, universal. So Paul is not dealing with that, with universe or with salvation history, but with the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. First, the whole human race seen under the law with its confinement and curse. And then the whole human race seen under grace as beneficiaries of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ demonstrated in the Christ event with its seven elements. They are incarnation, life and vicarious obedience in the days of his flesh, which is his, his response to the Father, culminating in obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. First three elements of the Christ event, or the coming of faithfulness. One, incarnation. Two, the life and vicarious obedience in the days of his flesh. Three, the obedience culminating in the extent of death by crucifixion. Four, fourth element of the Christ event, his burial. Fifth, his resurrection from the dead. Sixth, his elevation to the right hand of the Father, and seventh, his enthronement as Lord over all of creation, over all of humanity, over all of the angels, angels, and over all of the ages, and all of the nations. The sevenfold Christ event is salvific in all of its factors. It is universally salvific in all of its impact, and altogether, it is coetaneous with the coming of faithfulness. That rounds up last night's message. Don't be confused. Don't be ashamed. Don't feel embarrassed that you don't understand everything I said tonight. These are things that I intend to make eminently clear. The best teaching proceeds from an obscurity to a clarity. It proceeds from seeing through a glass darkly, but you got to do it at first, to seeing face to face by getting the right lenses. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that beyond what a human being could teach, beyond what a pastor could preach, beyond even what the scriptures can enlighten, may the Holy Spirit of truth and of grace enlighten us so that we can look into the mirror of the word and see face to face our Savior, Jesus Christ. One day we will see him face to face, either at death or at resurrection. One day we will see him, and we will see all things clearly, and everything will be clear to us, including all the things that didn't happen in our lives and all the things that did happen in our lives.